0: And he took only five little rocks and uh, the sling went round and round and round and round and and uh, we all know the story of David and Goliath or perhaps we've heard it and I'd like to pull it apart and hopefully uh, show you some insight into this story show you some practical application from this story uh, but we're just going to read through it right quick. It, it's a lot of verses uh, to get down. I think we're going to read all the way to 50 or so. But uh, just hang in there, pay attention, and we'll break it down and go from there. Chapter 17, 1 Samuel, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Sokah, which belonged to Judah. They encamped between Sokah and Ezekiah in ephes dam And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels and a shield bearer went before him. Then he stood and he cried out to the armies of the Israel and said to them, Why have you come up to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you are the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were greatly, were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was the son of that Ephrathite, of Bethlehem Judah whose name was Jesse who had eight sons and the man was old advanced in years in the days of Saul the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn next to him Abinadab and the third Shema. David was the youngest and the three oldest followed Saul But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. Then Jesse said to David, now take for your brothers and ephah this dried grain and these 10 loaves and run to your brothers at the camp and carry these 10 cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, took the things and went as Jesse commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight, shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, a Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches will give him his daughter and give him his father's house exemption taxes from Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So it shall be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you came down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him towards another and said the same thing. And the people answered him as the first ones did. Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, "'Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine.' And Saul said to David, "'You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for your youth, and he is a man of war from his youth.' Then David said to Saul, "'Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth.' And when it arose against me, I caught it by the beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand. And he drew near to the Philistine So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David and the man who bore the shield went before him. When the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him for he was only a youth, ruddy and good looking. So the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day, I will give you the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and he ran to the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, struck the Philistine, and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines, as far as the entrance of the valley and the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sharem, even as far as Gath and Ekron. So the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. We're gonna stop right there. Now that's a whole bunch of story. And I can still remember if I close my eyes, Uh, Sitting in that Sunday school class and and the Sunday school teacher put up the big giant in a little cut out piece of felt back stuff and put it on the board. And then this little shepherd boy with his little shepherd staff and that sling and then the five little stones and uh, told the story. And we were all like, wow. And the first thing we all did, especially us boys that were in the Sunday school class, is we went out directly after the Sunday school class and tried to find some leather to make our own sling. We figured if it could bring down a giant, we had to have one of those. We needed something like that. And uh, But as I've, through life, through uh, reading through God's word, I realized that this story has so much in it. This accounting of history of the children of Israel has so much more in it um, that to delve into it and dig into it and to find it uh, is, is like uncovering gold in a gold mine is there's so much value here. There's so much to hang on to. And there's so much that's practical for every day. You may not run up against a six-cubit and one-span tall giant uh, when you walk out the door. But you may have things in life. You may have challenges and circumstances in life that seem like a giant, that seem that big, that are always looming over you, and that always speak against you. And their words are abrasive and arrogant and obnoxious and they come against you and they would beat you down just by their very words. And you find yourself in that place. I think David found God's solution and that solution is our solution when we face those battles, those giants in our life. I'm gonna take this apart a little bit. The Valley of Elah, it's a real place. It's in Israel. You could go there today. You could walk down the path. You could go by the brook you could see the valley, it's about 300 meters wide. It is a valley that runs east and west. Um, The western edge comes over by the coast. The eastern edge is the road that uh, from ancient times goes right up into Bethlehem, goes into Jerusalem, into the heart of Israel. This is a strategic military valley. Uh, It is a road that you can still walk down and see the remnants of a road from long ago. The Romans used it later. Uh, It was used by the Philistines two times. It's mentioned in scripture later when they attack Israel in 1 Chronicles 14. And later in King Ahaz's days, 2 Chronicles 28. And Nebuchadnezzar himself walked this road with his army as he went to Jerusalem in 588 BC when he burned Jerusalem down and took the children of of Judah captive and removed all the stuff out of the temple and burned it down. Uh, This very road was used throughout time. Uh, It accessed the coast. Uh, Over on the left side uh, was Ascalon. It's one of the cities of the Philistines. Uh, Ekron, Gascalon, Gath. These are all major cities of the uh, Philistine lords. It's named after the terebinth trees. Those are pistachia palestinia. If you're a uh, biologist, they wanted to know the genus and name of the tree. But uh, the Valley of Elah, Uh, throughout Scripture has played a place. North of it was the hill uh, that uh, Israel camped on. The valley was in between, 300 meters wide. On the south hill that uh, bordered the valley was where the Philistine camped. And they set up their camps, and they basically uh, faced each other over this 300-meter distance and could yell back and forth. And then if they came to fight, they would move down into the valley, and they would fight in the valley floor. In the physical, it appears an appropriate battlefield. Uh, It's a means to an end. For the Philistines, it's a way to get to Jerusalem and take over Israel. For Israel, it's a means to push the Philistines back to the coast. Uh, There's a struggle for superiority that shows up here. There's a clash of uh, ideology and identity uh, between the Philistines who had all their gods and the God of Israel. The God that had chosen Israel to love, not because they were the best nation, not because they were the biggest nation, but He chose to put His love on them. He chose to bring them out of Egypt. He chose to, to bring them through the wilderness. <clears throat> he chose to bring them to the promised land, to give them a place and a home. The Philistines come against them in the promised land. Uh, in a sense, it's king of the hill on an adult level. It, it's like, I want to win. Uh, two battles, two armies that want to win. And it's a demonstration of pride. Uh, in and in one way, I think it's really a microcosm of what goes on in the world daily. Since Cain and Abel, since that struggle to be over the other person, to be higher than the other person. Um, some people achieve it by their achievements. Some people do it by cutting the other people down. And uh, mostly the time, it's usually by cutting the other person down and uh, backstabbing, and that goes on in our world today, even today. In verses 4 to 11, Goliath shows up on the scene, and we need to talk about him a little bit so we see it. The word champion, as it's used in the Hebrew, means the man in the middle. It's a mediator. It's a man literally who stood between the two camps. Goliath would daily walk down into the valley. He would stand there in view of Israel, and he would insult them. He would insult God, He would challenge them to a fight. He'd tell Saul, send me a guy. Now, Saul was the warriors. Saul could have stood up. Saul could have gone down and fought him. But Saul, like the rest of Israel, was afraid. Saul sat back in the tents. And it told us in the verse that we read that every time Goliath came out and spoke, the children of Israel were afraid and they curled back. They stayed up on top of their hill. This was an interesting concept to decide a a national conflict between two nations in a single contest, a one-on-one. All is at stake for all the winnings. This is what it comes down to is Goliath on one side and whoever Israel would put forth as a champion. Why did they do that? Most likely because they didn't wanna lose a bunch of men fighting an extended battle over a period of time. If your champion could win, And the Philistines had great confidence in Goliath, his size alone, six cubits in a span. Uh, If you don't know what that means, that's about nine foot, nine inches tall. This is a big dude. This is not a little guy. We'll talk about it a little bit more in a second. Israel didn't have a nine foot tall, nine inch guy. Israel didn't have a guy that size. Saul himself was head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. It was told that when he was anointed to be king of Israel. But that doesn't come anywhere close to the size of Goliath. Now, um, someone turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 2 for me. And I'm going to have you read a couple of verses. The giants was not an unusual thing in the land. Joshua and Caleb, when they came to the edge of the promised land and went in as spies, they spied out giants in the land and the other ten spies said, hey, we ain't going in because we're scared of those things. You got it, Jesse Lynn? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Read verses 10 and 11.
1: Then the Emen had dwelt there in the times past, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakin, mm-hmm. And they were also regarded as giants, like the Anakin.
0: And the Moabites called them Enon. Okay. Read uh, verses 20 and 21 now.:
1: And that was also recorded as the Land of Giants." Giants formerly dwelt there, But the Amorites called them
0: Za. <laughs> <laughs> if you say it quick and just mumble it, it's, it's okay. Second to eat, you just say. <laughs> Dispossessed them.
1: <laughs> and they dwelt in their place. Okay.
0: Okay, now flip over to chapter 3 and read me verses 11 to 13, real quick.
1: This is more than what I up for. <laughs> No, you're doing good. You're doing good. You're doing good.
0: No, we're good there. We can stop there. That's good. That's good. Yeah, There's that a lot of names. You did good. You worked through those. Um, yeah, you just all blended together. I know I was. Yeah. Like I said, you just say it real quick and just move on past it. Um, the giants were not an unknown thing. The Anakin, and we go back and we had time. I would take you back to Genesis 6. Uh, fallen angels came down, mated with the women of mankind, and formed uh, giants in the land. They were the Anakin. They were ancient and they uh, were half-breeds of angel and men, but that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. Uh, The remnants of those had trickled down through the DNA of the tribes and the people. They lived in different areas, and basically at the time of David, the time that this happens, is the last of these families of the giants were on the coastal cities. They belonged to the Philistines. Now, the bedstead she read about in chapter uh, 3, verse 11 to 12, the bedstead it talks about is actually the bay- bed frame. It was nine cubits, 13 and a half feet long, six feet wide. That's a big bed. That, that's way better than a California king. I don't know if you could get sheets for it at Walmart, but it's a big bed because it was a big person. He was a very large person. They have found remains of skeletons that are in this length and size in archaeological diggings in our world. This is not something that's a fantasy. It's not Grimm's fairy tales. This is a real deal. And these people, this Goliath and his brothers, uh, if we were to go to uh, Joshua 11, 12, uh, 2 Samuel 21, we won't do that. 1 Chronicles 20, you'll see that there are families uh, that are related to Goliath. Uh, There are ones, uh, giants, who are left, and they're pretty much in this area, this land. So the Philistines have their guy. He is that mediator that's going to stand in between the Philistines and the Israelites, and he's going to challenge them. So he, uh, A, if you walk up and you saw a guy that was nine foot, nine inches tall, what's going to be your first thought? Uh, (laughs) My first thought is, I hope he's on my side. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the first thing I'm going to think is I hope he's not mad at me. You know, the second thing is, is can I run faster than him? Yes. Or where's my keys to the car so I can drive away? Uh, there, this is an imposing figure that's there. It's not even done yet. He's not just tall. We have tall people in our world. Uh, we had a missionary who went to our church. He went to Papua New Guinea. The average height of a Papua New Guinean is four foot tall. This missionary, they they rarely in Papua New Guinea get over five foot tall. So when he would tell them how tall he was, he told them he's five foot 22 inches tall. So if you do your math and figure out, you can see how tall he was. He's a very tall guy, almost seven foot tall. His son's almost as tall as that, George Goodwin. And uh, he was a big guy too, he was huge. This guy is not just a tall guy, this guy's a warrior. And based on what he wears in armor, let me break that down for you a little bit. It says he had a coat of mail, first he had a helmet of brass. And they found remnants of this in the archeological diggings in Philistine area. It's like a tiara with feathers streaming back over the head and over the neck. Those feathers are brass that's been hammered out to make scales that lays down but moves when you move. So he has like a tiara going around his forehead with these feathers or scales of brass covering his head and neck and the sides of his face to protect him from someone swinging a sword at him or an arrow hitting him. He then wore a coat of mail and it tells us a lot about that in that verse. It says that his, where did I go? I'm in Deuteronomy now. I went over there to bail Jesse Lynn out in case it got too bad. She did really good. She didn't need bailing out. Actually bail me out. No, I didn't have to do anything. It says he was armed with a coat of mail. This is uh, verse five. Yeah, verse five. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. So that's kind of tough for us because we don't walk around and measure out things in shekels of bronze. But fortunately, they found shekels of bronze. They know what they are, they know what they weigh. That is a 125 pounds coat that he's wearing. He has bronze on his head, brass, you know, feathers that are over his head. Then he's got a jacket that weighs 125 pounds. Uh, It says that his spear that he carries, uh, it's like a weaver's beam, and these were large looms, and the beam itself is a huge piece of wood. Uh, The spear head weighed 15 pounds. So with a spear, if you're gonna throw it, to throw 15 pounds of a spear, you gotta have some strength while you're wearing 125 pounds. Now, when I go to work, I wear a a vest, bulletproof vest. It's called an outside carrier, an external carrier. And on it, I have my handcuffs, my flashlight, and pepper spray, baton, uh, my radio, uh, all this stuff strapped on it. It's probably about 30 pounds. Now, it's about an inch thick, and it's just a vest. But in the summertime, I sweat like, like crazy, that thing just, it just runs down because it's like a blanket. I can't imagine wearing 125 pounds and moving, but this guy fights battles with 125 pounds on, and then he has bronze plates that are on his legs, which are protecting his legs. Then he's carrying this spear with its huge wooden shaft and a 15 pound head. And his shield, which is interesting to me, he has a man carry his shield to go out in front. The shield must be pretty heavy as well. He only picks it up when he needs it for the immediacy of the battle. He has someone carry it for him. Not only that, but Goliath has an attitude. Verses 8 to 10 and in 43 to 44, he comes out every day for 40 days and he goads Israel. He's confident in his skill. He's blasphemous. He, he defies them by the gods of the Philistines, little g gods of the Philistines. Now it's interesting to me in that what should have been maybe a reminder to Goliath and the Philistine army about the God of Israel. In their not so long ago past, what had happened that we just studied, what had happened with the Philistines and God of Israel? Huh? They got hemorrhoids. (laughs) The whole nation got hemorrhoids. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant ended up in Dagon's uh, temple. And Dagon fell over. The statue of their fish god fell over. They stood it back up. The next day, it fell over again. The head fell off. The arms came off of it. And they said, you know what? We got a problem. Everyone that was around the Ark of the Covenant was getting hemorrhoids. The whole nation was suffering (laughs) from what they call bloody pile disease. And uh, it was just nasty. What's going on? They sent the ark back. They put it on the thing. They said, forget it. We don't want to be, this God has overdone our God. But for some reason, see, Goliath, that never set into his heart. That never set into his mentality. That was not long ago in their history that that happened. They ponied up the rulers of the five cities of the Philistines gathered up a whole bunch of money to make golden tumors, golden representations of the tumors and hemorrhoids that everybody had, and send that back with the ark of the covenant as an offering kind of weird deal but that was their ideology that was their their fear factor based on their gods they thought that would somehow satisfy the god of israel i find that it's interesting that goliath comes out he's armed with the best of man's efforts and the best of man's war tools uh he's confident of the outcome And I would have you picture him standing in the valley with the sun shining on him and all that brass, those scales of brass in his coat of mail, on his head, those feathers laying down. Imagine when the sun hit him. What did it look like? What did it look like? It'd be pretty bright.
1: Pretty
0: Pretty shiny. He'd be like a glowing orb of gold light sitting down in the valley. And as they're sitting up on the other hillside and see that, see that golden glow walking out into the valley, uh, it, I think it inspired a little fear in him just from that. And then his words, and then his size, and then his armament, and then his uh, prowess, his uh, arrogance, that he would call them out. And, and into this picture, I think it's interesting how God brings David you have this warrior of warriors, a man above all men, this huge giant of a person, this glowing personality, this, this glowing uh, figure that's coming out to challenge the God of Israel. And God sends a little shepherd boy. David's not that guy that's really tall like Saul. He's not a head and shoulders above. He's a youth. He's probably 15 or 16 years old at this point. He's just been tending sheep. And he comes out and he's got a stick and he's got a little bag hanging over his shoulder. And he comes out and he sees what's going on. First, he, um, in verses 12 to 15, it's just kind of a history recap who he is. In verse 17 to 19, it tells us his father sends him. Jesse says, hey, grab some stuff, grab some provisions, go. And I want you to check on your brothers. And I want you to also come back and tell me what's going on. You're just a messenger, David. You're, You're just a guy to move some loaves of bread, some grain, some cheese, take it over to the guy, give it to the battle, get some gossip, get some news, bring it back so I know what's going on. He didn't have email, he didn't have a text, he couldn't send him a Instagram. So he needed David to run over there and go. David has nothing. He's young, he's ruddy, and he has a fair countenance. We found out last week what ruddy is. It's red. He's just red. We don't know it's red hair, It's red skin tone. We don't know what it is. But uh, that was the whole description. Is there anything in that that inspires confidence in him as a battlefield warrior? The Philistines have presented a guy that's 100% war. He's like, he just says, blood and guts. That's what he shows. God sends out David, a little shepherd boy with a stick and a little sling and a little pouch. And he comes out. And he sees and he hears what's going on. And David immediately starts questioning. Verses 20 to 27, he walks around and he talks to different people. He goes, what's going on? What's this guy talking about? Why are we standing here? Why isn't somebody going out and fighting this battle? Why are we all sitting back in fear? This guy's insulting God. Where's your confidence? This is just like when Joshua and Caleb came back from their spy mission, saw the giants. The other 10 guys saw exactly the same thing. The other 10 guys said, no, we're going to live in fear. We're going to stay in fear. Joshua and Caleb said, huh, we go fight. God said he's going to fight the battle. We're just going to go. And we know the end of that story. Those 10 died. Immediately, God took care of that. Verse 28, uh, Eliab, who's the oldest brother in the family, hears about David talking to other people. He catches up with them and uh, he's, is he happy? No. Not at all. Let me read the verse again to you. Uh, verse 28, Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Um, that is an insult in case you didn't read it that way. Why did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? In other words, you're not even worthy to have a big flock of sheep. You had a couple sheep. You're just out there, dad's just keeping you busy. You you don't even have value. How many times do people in our lives try to speak against the value in our life? How many times do people try to denigrate you, try to bring you down by minimalizing you, by minimalizing who you are? Well, if you stand on your own strength, you may not show up as much. But in the strength of the Lord, David turns out to be much more than his brother put him up to be. David doesn't count on his own strength. He doesn't count on his own prowess. He counts on God. But Eliab sees him. Eliab's like, you're not even uh, responsible enough to have a lot of sheep. You've got these few sheep and what'd you do with them? I know your pride. You think you're smart. You think you're tough. You've come down here to see the battle. You're just here because you want to be a looky-loo. And his brother brings him down. We need to see ourselves as David sees himself, not in his own strength, not in his own power. David sees himself as a child of God. David sees the value that God sees in him. Christ came and died for us while we were yet sinners. Christ poured out his love on us while we were yet sinners, while we were minimalized to the, to the lowest degree. While Satan says you're worthless, God says you're valuable. God says, I'm coming. And I'm preparing a way of salvation for you. David doesn't let his brother speak against him. David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Is there not a reason? Is there not something going on here? I'm here for a reason. I'm here for a purpose. And that's another thing we need to understand about our life. We're here for a purpose. God didn't save you just to have you go through the rest of your life just bumping around. God has us for a purpose. We are a child of God, empowered by God. God has something for you to do. And he's gonna show you. And you gotta be willing and ready to say, okay, God, I'm ready to do it. David goes out, he speaks to others and uh, talks about, hey, this guy's talking about us. And I love how that word gets up to Saul. And now where has David been in respect to Saul up to this point? What has he done for Saul up to this point? Last week, we talked about it. He played guitar. You know, he played a harp. He kept Saul calm. When the evil spirit came on Saul, he would keep him calm. He'd just play some music. And I can imagine as Saul hears, hey, there's this little guy out here that's talking about Goliath and how he, someone needs to go whip him. Saul's like, oh, my goodness, that harp player, that kid with the guitar, what, what? get him in here. I'm going to talk to this kid. I want to find out what's going on. And uh, David comes forth, and he sure doesn't let himself be minimalized to just a musician. David says, I'm ready to go to battle. Verse 31 says, the words which David spoke were heard, and they reported them to Saul he sent for him. And David said to Saul, and this is incredible, little shepherd boy is talking to a king. This is the same thing that's happened with Joshua and Caleb when they talked to the entire nation of Israel. They're just... Joshua and Caleb they're just two guys but they're empowered by God David's empowered by God he says let no man's heart fail because of Goliath your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine and Saul in a human sense looks at David looks at his size and scorns him Saul says you're not able to go fight this Philistine you're a youth he's been a warrior since he was a kid you're just a kid, go back to your sheep, go back to your heart playing, go do something else. But, and I love how David comes back because David's confidence uh, as 34 to 37 verses, if you look at those verses, David starts to tell about what happened when he was a shepherd boy and a lion came and a bear came and, and he didn't just stand off at a distance with a bow or a 30 odd six. He got right up in the face of the bear and the lion and he fought it. But where did David account the victory for the bear and the lion? He gave it to God. He gave it to God. Let me flip to the end of it. The Lord, uh, verse 37, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David said, this this Philistine is nothing more than a wild animal coming against the flock. He's nothing special. God handled the bear. God handled the lion. God's going to handle the Philistine. Not I'm going to handle it. Not like I'm the super warrior, ninja, kung fu artist. He said, God's going to handle it. I'm willing to go out and let God handle it through me. Saul's like, uh, yeah, cool, okay, fine, <laughs> you're gonna die, our nation's gonna go down, we're gonna serve the Philistines, that's the bottom line, that's probably what's gonna happen here. So uh, let me give you some armor, maybe it'll last five more minutes. Saul uh, puts his armor, king's armor onto David. And this is a picture really of what's happening uh, in a bigger sense is, is Saul already abdicated his kingdom. Saul already stepped away from his responsibility as king, by disobedience to God. Samuel's already told Saul that he's no longer going to be the king, that God has removed it from him. Saul's just treading water. So giving up his armor, it it was his battle. Saul should have fought it. But to give up his armor is just another step in that process. Sure, here, take my armor, put this on. I got a bronze helmet too, like that guy's got. Here, put that on. Here's a coat of mail. I got one of those too. You put that on. And, and David hooks up the sword, he puts on the, the helmet, he puts on the bronze mail, and he tries to walk. And he can't walk. Saul was a dude head and shoulders above any man in Israel, it says. And so Saul was bigger, Saul was a grown man, David's a youth. He puts it all on, he's like, I can't even move. He said, no, I'm not going to wear this. David said, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took him off, and then he prepares for the battle ahead of him. Um, and this, these verses 40 through 44 is really, this is the Sunday school lesson. This is where the felt graph was. This is where we focus. This is where we spend all our time uh, in that. As David says, uh, you know, he goes down, he, he finds five smooth stones. They were probably made of flint. There's a lot of flint in that area and uh, polished by the brook that runs through the creek. He goes down, he finds uh, five smooth stones. They would fly aerodynamically the best, uh, but he just picks up five smooth stones, he puts them in his pouch. As a kid in Sunday school, I said, why five? Why'd he take five? And I think David took five because he was prepared for the next four guys that would come up. Not just the one guy in front of him, but the next four that would come up as well. He was ready to fight. He was ready to do what needed to be done to win this battle. And he puts his pouch and his sling and his hand and his staff and he starts walking down to the Philistine. And I think the Philistine saw the figure of David walking down, coming into the valley and the brook. Philistine says, hey, we got a battle. We're gonna go fight. Philistine comes down and he starts getting closer to David and the closer he got, as his vision starts to clear as the distance closes, he looks at him, he goes, wait, they, they sent me a kid. What is going on here? It says he disdained him for he was only a youth, red and good looking. And the Philistine says, am I a dog? He sees this as an affront to him. He's like, what? That's all Israel's got. They think I'm just this guy? They're gonna send a kid down here to fight me? And he starts to curse David by his gods. Well, this uh, clearly shows his gods don't have a lot of strength. They don't have any value at all. And the Philistine said to David, come here, I'm, I'm gonna kill you real quick, get it over with, and I'm gonna turn your body into you know, food for the, for the worms. And David said to the Philistine, and this is a, a key point for us to lean into, verse 45, David said, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beast of the earth that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly will know that the Lord does not save with a sword and a spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Uh, Anything that we undertake as believers, We need to undertake with the attitude of David. We need to take. It's not because I know how to do something. It's not because I can cook or I can build a house or not because I have strength or not because I can speak or not because I can sing or not because I can play an instrument. It's because the battle is the Lord's. We need to remember who is empowering us. We need to remember that God's power is the power that we can accomplish anything Goliath steps forth and this is one of my favorite little spots. Uh, In 46 or 48, the Philistine arose and he came and he got close to meet David. What'd David do? I'm making you look at it. Someone's got to look at it. What'd David do? Philistine's getting close. Do you back up? Do yeah. you get your, your foot set? What do you do? Ran, ran. He runs at him. He, runs at him and... he comes right to Goliath. And, and I try to think of that in Goliath's mindset. What, what does he see? Little... Here's his kid with a <laughs> stick. He's like, you're running at me? Yeah. Who do you think you are? Goliath really, and now, now I'm going to take this in a whole different angle. Goliath presents us with a fair picture of Satan. In his appearance, God's word tells us in 2 Corinthians 11:14 14, it says, don't be surprised if Satan shows up as a minister of light, an angel of light. And old Goliath gave us that picture as the sun would hit his armor, and just that gleaming glow, he showed up. See, Satan was that covering cherub, that God's creation says he was beautiful beyond all beauty said he could sing, said he could, uh, he he gave this radiant presentation. Satan would stand in the place of God. Satan would show himself to be a good guy. We often get the impression that Satan is that guy that comes in, he's got a leather vest on with spit and blood dripping off of it and a forked tail and horns and and, uh, big teeth and he's nasty and mean and, and spit, but Satan doesn't play like that. Satan comes in sideways. He comes in shiny. He comes in looking good. He's got all the right stuff. And and he attracts people to himself because he's a deceiver. Man, if you come in and you look like you look bad, there's no deception there. But Satan comes in looking good. Satan comes in and sounds good. It tickles your ear. It feels good. And then he shows up for who he is. Uh, 2 Corinthians, the next verse, eleven fifteen, says uh, he comes and his demons come. They're ministers of righteousness. They come in and they're putting on a good show. They're handing out stuff and they're feeding folks and they're patting people on the back and they're doing things, but it's not for God. It's not in the battle for God. They're doing it for themselves. They show up as a minister of righteousness. They're trying to blend in. They try to show up with everybody else. Satan's promise. He told uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, you you follow my idea. You're going to be just like God. Satan has incredible power in the earth. He's the prince of the power of the air. He has uh, tremendous power on this earth. And it shows up just like Goliath had power. In terms of battlefield, in a physical sense, he was huge. He was strong, he was a warrior, he was powerful, he was the champion. He also had the armor, and Satan would have a mimicry of God's word where the armor of God in Ephesians 6, 13 to 17, has that helmet of salvation, the breastplate, the righteousness, loins girt with truth, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the sword of the Lord, Uh, The shield of faith, all that that is God, Satan would present a mimicry of that armor. David tested the armor of Saul and found it to be man's armor, found it to be lacking, found it to be tested. But God's word is tested and true. God's word is always true. Ephesians 6.12 tells us about the enemy. It says, we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness and high places. That's who David ran into that day, is the Philistine, who on a spiritual level was trying to challenge God. And David didn't let that stop him, because David said, this is God's battle, it's not my battle. God's gonna fight it. There's a picture here also, David is a type of Christ. And I've said before many times, in a type, it's not the fullness. He is not Christ. He's not perfect. But he presents a picture that's very interesting here of Christ. David was sent by Jesse uh, to a battle. Just as Jesus was sent to this earth to fight the battle against sin and hell. John 5, Jesus said, my father has sent me. I'm down here to do my father's business. So as Jesse sent David, so the father sent Christ to the earth. As David was anointed by Samuel, so Christ was anointed by the Spirit in his baptism. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And anointed by the oil of gladness of his brethren. Psalm 45, verse 7. I'll read that to you just so we have that. Psalm 45. Getting close. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And it goes on to describe Christ in a prophetic sense in that uh, passage. As David obeyed his father, and, and if you caught it in the verse when Jesse said, I want you to go, what time of day did David go? You see how many little details y'all missing? Yeah. I read it all to you. It was all right there. He got up early in the morning. If you want to go somewhere, you get up early in the morning. If you don't want to go somewhere, oh, you have to go to school already. You just, you drag your feet. David got up. He obeyed. So Christ came. Hebrews 12, 2 said he came For the joy that was set before him, he despised the shame of the cross, but he came with joy to accomplish salvation for us, knowing it would cost his life. So as David came, David ran, David made haste to get there, left early in the morning to get over to his brothers to the battle to do the father's will. So Christ came for the joy that was set before him. As Christ was, as David was rejected by his brethren, his brother specifically Eliab, but also the other brothers, uh, Christ was rejected by his own. John 1, verse 11 says, he came into his own and his own received him not. not." There's a type in here. You see how this parallel runs? David set himself to battle, so Christ set himself to the cross. Luke chapter 9, um, Luke chapter 9, verse 51 Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. His disciples are like, "Lord, we could just hang out, and we could build a nice little thing here. You could take power away from Rome. You could run the country. Would sit next to you on the right and left. We would, boy, it would just be wonderful. We'd have this nice little earthly kingdom right here." Christ said, no, I have to be about the father's business. He set his face, he set his mind to go to the battle. So David did. David said, hey, why aren't somebody fighting this guy? What are we doing? As Judah and David in a second sense faced the arrogance of Goliath for 40 days, so Christ faced Satan's arrogance for 40 days in the wilderness of temptation. Forty days It told us that Goliath walked out and spit and scorned and tempted the children of Israel. Come on, come on, let's go fight. Satan did the same thing to Christ and Christ stood against that through that time. And so as David accomplishes victory in killing Goliath, so Christ accomplishes victory over death. David is nowhere near Christ. But David does give us a picture of Christ in this little battle. We see some points that tie across. We see that what David said is true. The battle is the Lord's. Uh, Zechariah. Someone look this up. Uh, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Read it when you get there, whoever gets there. You guys had so much enthusiasm when you walked in. I'm sorry it's so boring.
1: No, it's not boring. boring. I'm not not absorbing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. It's not boring. Okay. Exciting. So he answered and said to me, is that where I am? Yes, yep. This is the word of the
1: Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts.
0: This is now. that's good. That's good right there. That's how David won the victory. Is David was willing to be used by God. David stood against all odds. David sco- stood scorned by those around him. Uh, he found no encouragement by the ones who humanly that he might have looked to give him some, some good words, some wisdom. Eliab, his brother, just like, ran him into the ground, tried to run him into the ground. David didn't let him do it. There's great confidence that we can have in God, that we should have in God. David's story should be our story. You're not going to fight a nine foot, nine inch tall dude probably to go fight this afternoon. But you may find a nine nine foot, nine inch tall giant of depression in life, that overwhelms you and speaks against you. You may find neighbors that seem like they're nine foot tall, nine inches of just angry. You may find people who go out of their way to bring you down, who speak against you. Never forget who you are. David, in the psalm that we read, Psalm 7, where did he find his confidence? In, in God. In this chapter, where did he find his confidence? In God. Shelter. Did he go out in man's strength? Did he go out in man's armor? Did he go out wearing the best of Israel's protection? No. A stick and a sling and five stones. And God accomplished a huge victory that day. They chased the Philistines almost back to the coastal valleys. Uh, almost as that Valley of Elah dumps out towards the coastline. They chased them all the way back there. Uh, Their bodies littered that whole roadway going that direction. And, And it all started with just one young boy that stood up and allowed God to use him for the battle. Christ came. And in a greater way than David, Christ demonstrated the same thing. Uh, how many people stood with him at the cross? How many of those disciples were down there fighting the Romans to untie him and pull those nails out? Not a single one. Not a single one. They scattered, they hid. They were hiding. Three years they saw his miracles, three years they saw the power of God displayed. Saul had experienced the power of God and the Spirit of God upon him until he rebelled. And it was taken from him. The kingdom was taken from him and was given to David. But David would not stand in that place for years ahead of this time, years after this time. In fact, what happens, we'll see next week, is that Saul becomes resentful because David becomes a warrior of warriors. He, he, they sing a song, Saul's killed his thousands, David is ten thousands, it is for all Saul did, David exceeded that over and over again. The story of Goliath's uh, death would remain a forefront. The sword of Goliath, the armor of Goliath would still be uh, carried about and kept for years. And, and as David became king, still plays a part and would show up later on. The story that would take away I want us to have is to remember what Christ did for us. He fought our Goliath. Our Goliath is sin and death. Our Goliath is the sin that was part of us, that was embedded in our DNA, that God provided a way of salvation, a way to overcome. Our Goliath is every challenge that rises up in life, every instance and circumstance where life comes against us. That's our Goliath. But God beat that Goliath. He's already beat it. We need to live in his victory. We need to live his victory every day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to dig into David and Goliath's story. The history, uh, the recounting of an incredible victory and how you would use just a young shepherd boy to accomplish great things for your people and for us. Out of David's line, We can never lose track and sight that your son was going to come through the line of David. If he had died on this battlefield, a prophecy would have failed and you wouldn't be God. But he didn't fail. Just another proof, another evidence as David would continue on. And his line would be the line where Christ would be born in this very place in Bethlehem. That he was protecting this day. As he stood in the valley of Elah, he was protecting that city so that city would be there so Christ could be born in that city thousand years later. It's incredible, Lord, just how you worked out your plan through the best that Satan could throw at it, through the most that he could do. And I know Satan thought he won a victory that day on the cross as Christ, you gave up your life. He thought he'd won a victory, but then the horrible realization sank in that he had actually just sealed his own fate. His judgment was now all he had to look forward to, his eternity in hell. Thank you for giving us life. Thank you for going to the cross. Thank you for dying. Thank you for being buried. Thank you for rising again the third day. Thank you for giving us a victory that we can hang on to every single day, that we can live in every day. Remind us of that victory, Lord. Remind us it's not in the armor of the world. it's not in all the appurtenances the, the world would have us carry and strap on and and, carry and take with us to win. But the battle's yours. We need to depend on your armor, that helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith. We need to have that. Our loins girt with truth. We're in a world that, that seems to relish lies today. They're spoken across the airwaves, on every channel, in every newspaper. People take great joy in lies. May your truth be truth in our life every single day, Lord. Give us the confidence to live, to trust in you. You are our shield. You are our strength. We praise you for it. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, as I mentioned last week, we have lunch this afternoon at the Bat